you won't get that analogy, so let me just quickly explain it to you. When you go to the supermarket, you may see a bottle of milk that looks like that. Probably not with Jesus on it at all, but you will see bottles of milk. And generally, you will see the red, green, and blue varieties. That's the ones that we all go through for, for the skimmed, the semi-skimmed, or the full fat. Who's a full fat person in this place? Put your hand up. You're my people. Come on. Come on, if you're skimmed, what's wrong with you? You might as well just put water on your, you, 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 you might as well just put water. If you're semi-skimmed, fair play, I'll let you get away with it. But there is another type of milk, and it's called Gold Top. And it's generally to the right, and it's at the top of the, the top shelf. It's like top shelf stuff. It's thicker, it's creamier, it's more milkier than milk. And we, when we think about Jesus and our relationship with him, sometimes we choose a skimmed version of him, a semi-skimmed. And even those of us who feel like we have a full fat version of him, we're not fully participating in the gold top version of Jesus. And so these last few weeks, we've been looking at this image of Jesus, why, why we should choose the entirety of him. And in week one, we said that sometimes we make Jesus into our own image rather than him being, uh, being made into his image. We discovered that Jesus is the revealer of the Father, that he's the creator of the world and the sustainer of the universe. Last week, we were reminded that we can trust Jesus because he understands us. He knows us. He's compassionate towards us and loving. He came from heaven to earth in order for us to relate to him. Jesus not only um, understands what we face, but he also experienced what we face as well. In fact, he didn't just experience it, but he overcame it as well. And so I want to build upon this, this thought this week that actually the bottom line is this. Jesus doesn't just relate to us or understand us, but more than that, he disciples us. Discipleship is a very Christian term. I know that and we're going to look into that. If you're not a Christian or you haven't been walking for a while with the Lord, I'm going to explain that little term in a moment to you. But I want to look at this idea that he disciples us. In other words, he leads us. He, he helps us grow and become all that we're destined to so this week we choose gold top Jesus because he disciples us. Jesus disciples us. Let me just pray. Lord, I pray that today you would take my words and transform them to your words. Lord, I pray anything of me would just die right now, but everything of you would rise up, Lord Jesus. I pray that as I speak, you'd be like you speaking to us. That, Lord, you would penetrate our hearts with the truths that you want us to, to know today. In your mighty name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be looking in Matthew today, Matthew chapter 4, uh, in particular at verses 18. The, the words are going to be on the screen, but if you've got a Bible, then why don't you open it and, and turn towards it? It's always good practice to have a Bible. Uh, but this is what it says. It's a famous passage. It's when Jesus calls his disciples. It says this, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, followed, uh, and, their father and followed him. Three words that changed these, boy, these boys' lives forever. Three words that's probably changed society and the world in general over the course of history. And three words that have probably changed your lives and have changed mine and continue to change our lives if we let it. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Now, I, I just want to explain a little bit because I think if you read this story and you're, you're not affair with the, the, the history and context of the Bible, we can just read this and it can seem a little bit weird. 
Like, come follow me. Jesus goes to these four men, and we can read it like this. It seems a little bit suspect that this strange guy called Jesus just rocks up at their place of work and says, shouts to them, hey, follow me. Stop what you're doing and follow me. That's a bit weird, first of all, that one. But then when he says, you're not going to be fishers of men, but I'm going to make you fishers. No, you're not going to be fishers of fishermen. You're going to be fishers of men. I'd be like, what the heck is this guy talking about? It's a little bit crazy here. And actually, sometimes if we read that, I don't think it really fully makes sense why they suddenly just left their jobs and walked off with him. But actually, there's context to this stuff. There's information that we sometimes miss when we don't place the Gospels together. Just to drop everything and come and follow this guy would seem a little bit weird. What is he even talking about? Imagine me rocking up to the, the corner shop over the road and say, hey, follow me, come follow me. They'd be like, what? You're just a nutter from across the road. Uh, or if I went into town and said, okay, you, just follow me. They'd be like, no chance. So why did they follow Jesus? And I think sometimes we read the scriptures without understanding context. But you see, my belief is Jesus is a gentleman. Jesus, what, he doesn't force himself upon us, uh, but he waits for the invite to come into our lives. And he is constantly inviting us to join him, him too, but he's not forcing himself upon us. And the important thing is to wind back a little bit here in the story because they knew Jesus. They knew him before this interaction. And it's important for us to understand this, that they were acquainted with him far before he called them in Matthew 4. In fact, in John's Gospel in chapter 1, it indicates that they were acquainted with him uh, and they had asked about him, that they had hung around him, they'd witnessed what he'd he'd done. In fact, they'd been with John the Baptist when he was baptised. And they'd asked John questions about him, and John had confirmed some stuff. He said, behold, the Lamb of God. And they were like, oh, right, this is the Messiah. This man is worth listening to. This man is something I want to get close to and understand. He's a teacher, a rabbi that I want to be part of. And so he says, come follow me. Jesus says, and I will make you, uh, send you out to fish for people. At this point, he's starting to call them into a discipleship model but they'd already had that interaction you see with him so it wasn't a kind of just off the cuff thing like hey come follow me it was like a relationship that had started a process that had started and when we go into discipleship when Jesus disciples us it's a process that begins and it takes a little bit of time to get to know him but when we start to get to know him we'll unpack this in a moment it's a process that we go through and so what does this word even mean disciples Because it's definitely got 100% a feeling of something religious, hasn't it, there? We don't really hear it in any other sect of the world. And if we do, then we're like, call to work, call to alert, call to alert, call to alert. If we heard someone saying, I've got some disciples. If I said I had 12 disciples, all of a sudden you'd think, Adam's building a cult here. That's a little bit weird. But we accept it when we read the stories in the Bible. Why is that? Because it's certainly got some uh, religious feelings to it, and I think sometimes it can have some connotations created to it. So let's look at this word. The standard definition of disciple is someone who adheres to the teachings of another. It is a follower or a learner. It refers to someone who takes up the ways of someone else. When we apply this to Jesus, a disciple is someone who learns from him to live like him. Someone who, because of God's awakening grace in their life, conforms his or her words, his or her her ways to the words and ways of Jesus. You might say it like this, as others have put it in the past. Disciples of Jesus themselves are little Christs. They're they're subversions of him. They're trying to create themselves to become like him. G.K. Chesterton put it like this. Christianity seems more of a noun 
or an adjective. But a disciple, that's a verb because it takes action. It takes action. It's not just a one-time thing like, yeah, I'll put my hand up, I'm saved, that's it, I'm a disciple of Jesus. But actually it's a participational thing that we have to be participating in as well as him. So what does this actually mean for us? I think there's a couple of things for us in 21st century Britain here in Kidderminster in 2024. We can try and follow Jesus from a distance or we can follow up close. Because following Jesus from a distance looks very different to following him up close. I have just over 400 followers on Twitter. Yeah, you can. I was expecting a woo. Uh, maybe not. Um, I have 400 followers on Twitter. Do I know? Well, it's not called Twitter anymore. It's called X, isn't it? But, but I don't know. I don't necessarily know all 400 of them. And they don't know me. They don't see how I live my life all the time. They don't interact with me. But when Jesus says, come followers, he's calling us to get close to him, to understand him. Because following Jesus from a distance looks really different to following up close. Fundamentally, Jesus calls us to follow him because he wants to disciple us, wants to grow and wants us to grow and become more like him. How can we do this from afar? Because being a Christian and being a disciple are two very different things. And I think two uh, because they're too, too different, I want to take a moment to explain this theory to you because you might think, well, I'm a Christian. That means I'm a disciple automatically. And it doesn't necessarily mean that. Let me just explain this to you. Because Jesus didn't say in Matthew 28 when he commissioned uh, the disciples to go and make Christians of the world. He didn't say go and make courses of the world that will then develop more Christians. He didn't uh, uh, use that expression. He said, go and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It wasn't go and make Christians. It wasn't like, oh, just read this how-to book and you become a Christian. Say this prayer and that's it. But it was like, go and make a disciple. So what's the difference between a Christian and a disciple? Well, the first thing is we need to start with some shapes. You know, one of the things that we teach our kids as parents, and I'm sure you do this if you're a grandparent, is the different types of shapes. So I used to say to Angus, this is a square, this is a circle, this is a triangle. And then we have uh, a program called Coco Melon, which is never put it on in your house because it will just go round and round in your head. Circle, square, triangle, circle, square, tri- all the time. And so he learns the differences between these things. But let me ask you a question because it's just kid stuff, right? It's easy peasy. Are squares also rectangles? Are squares also rectangles? Because the difference between squares and rectangles aren't as clear as you think. In fact, every square is also a rectangle. A rectangle. So what is the difference? I'm going to give you a little mathematical ge- ge- um, some, some lesson here. Yeah, ge- geometry here. A rectangle is a quadrilateral with all four right angles. From this definition, you can prove that the opposite sides are parallel and of the same length. A rectangle can be tall and thin, short and fat, or all the sides can have the same length. However, a square is a quadrilateral with all four angles, right angles, and all four sides of the same length. So a square is a special kind of rectangle. It is one where all the sides have the same length. Thus, every square is a rectangle because it is a quadrilateral with all four angles being right angles. However, and Angie's head's been blown off here. However, not every rectangle is a square. To be a square, its sides must have the same length. The sm- so this 
There we go. So this small geometry lesson should remind us that sometimes we think we know something that we don't really know. It's not until we think deeply about the two words or concepts that we uncover the real difference. And that when we do the same thing with being a disciple or a Christian, we can start to see the difference. You see, Christian is a word with a long history. It's used sparingly in Scripture. In fact, the first time it was used was in Acts 11.26. It appears to have been this kind of derogatory term to explain these followers of Jesus. It was uh, uh, used to explain this group of outsiders, the early Christ followers, literally meaning little Christ or follower of Christ. That is the term's usage as Christianity grew. Now, the problem with this is today when we think about Christianity or Christian, it, it comes with a lot of baggage. It's a term of belief now more than behavior. You see, when we used it back in the day, when it was used those three times in Acts, it described people who behaved like Jesus and subscribed to his behavior. However, now, when we think about it, we, I, I think of what was the last census, maybe 10 years ago, something like 10, 20 years ago, and, and, and when it changed, the swing from being a Christian country to like really not just a non-religious state really now we are, everybody kicked off, didn't they? But the truth was that people started to realize, are they truly Christian? What does it mean to be Christian? Is it that I'm just subscribing to a set of beliefs, or does it mean my behaviors have to match those beliefs? You see, to today, it arrives of all this baggage. It's commonly used for someone who has intellectually accepted the beliefs of Christianity instead of being recognized by their actions. Today's Christian is someone who has accepted Jesus maybe as their personal savior, who identifies with the Christian religion. There's someone who can't refer to themselves as a Muslim, a Buddhist, a Hindu, or a Jew. It can refer to someone who never goes to church. It could refer to someone who goes to church every single week, never misses a meeting, goes to every connect group, prayer meeting. It could refer to a minister. It could refer to someone who's only just engaged for the first time with church. It can be helpful, but it can also be confusing. So while Christian is the most popular term in our current culture to describe a person who follows Jesus, disciple was the most popular term in the New Testament. In fact, the, new, the disciple, the word disciple is used over 281 times in the New Testament compared to the three times of the word Christian. So you see where I'm going with this now, don't you? The word disciple has an even longer history than the word Christian because it was around before Jesus was around. In fact, some of Jesus' disciples were first John the Baptist's disciples, and we read about that and understand that, and that's where they first interacted with Jesus. It was first written down by a Greek philosopher nearly 500 years before Jesus walked the earth. It referred to a learner or an apprentice, the master-apprentice, teacher-student paradigm, where this was one that Jesus called the Twelve into. He was training, his, and his training was immersive. It was holistic. Jesus traveled with these disciples, ate with them, lodged with them. So what does that mean for us today when we say we are a disciple of Jesus? What does, ha what does being a disciple mean? I think three things for us today. The first thing is this. When we read Matthew 4, 19, it says, Come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. In this relatively short sentence, we see three essentials that Jesus calls out in the disciple. First one is this, come follow me. First, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus. In order to follow him, we must put aside our agendas. We must put aside our plans to follow him. Just as the, the, the disciples set aside their lives to follow him, so do we. So the first one is this, to follow him, 
means to submit to him. That's what it means to be a disciple. To follow him means to submit to him. Second one is this, and I will make you. That's what he said. Come follow me and I will make you. Second, a disciple is somebody who is being changed by Jesus. It's a continual change to be by Jesus. As we follow Jesus and sum- submit to Jesus, therefore we are changed by him. Not only in our direction being changed, but also our actions and our beliefs. And this is a participational thing. Again, it's not just I'm a Christian, change me. It's let me work with you, Lord. It's like you were in training with him and he, and he trains you. When we follow, we act. But here Jesus is, is active in changing us. And this is the key. Transformation is a cooperative work when we are disciples of Jesus. And finally, he says this, I'm going to make you fishers of men. A disciple is engaged in the mission of Jesus. We aren't being transformed to embark on a mission of our choosing. I will be 100%. I know I'm called here. This is my town. I love this town. I flipping love Kitty. Like, you ain't going to take that away from me. However, if I had my own choice back when I could have chosen, would I have come here? Probably not. I would be saying, Lord, send me somewhere hot and beautiful. Send me, what about New York, Lord, on, on a summer's day? I like a bit of that, Jesus. Why don't you give me this huge mansion, Lord Jesus? We, we, our heart's desires are different to what God's heart's desires are. And sometimes we have to realize when we are on, uh, when we're a disciple, we have to be engaged with his mission, where he's calling us to, what he's requiring of us. We are changed to join in Jesus' mission. It's not me saying to Jesus, hey, would you just come down? And join with my mission that I've got going on in my little thing here. It's me saying, yes, I will engage with your mission where you are. A disciple becomes like the teacher, not just in morals, but also in mission and methods. So to follow him means to submit to him. It means transformation is a cooperative work when we are a disciple of Christ. And a disciple becomes like the teacher, not just in morals, but also in mission and method. Those are measurable items for us to have, and they're important things to have, measurable things. You know, a sufficient definition of the word disciple is not a complete description of the word. The definition allows us to incorporate all true Jesus disciples, regardless of their age, spiritual maturity. A brand new disciple fits within this definition as easily as the most experienced and mature Christian follower. But at the same time, it weeds out those who have stopped following, stopped being changed by him, or engaging in the mission of Jesus. It speaks to belief, decision, and outward aim. So what are we? Are we squares, or are we rectangles? Because you see, as the difference between the square and the rectangle, we understand the difference when we realize that all disciples are Christians, but not every Christian is a disciple. So what are you? Are you a square or are you a rectangle? Are you a disciple or a Christian? Because remember, all disciples are Christians, but not every Christian is a disciple. And you know, with this knowledge now, the question remains, can we follow Jesus from a distance and still be his disciples? I think the answer is no, we can't. No, we cannot. We cannot do that. We can be Christians from a distance, people who choose which bits of Jesus we like or dipping into this part of his teaching or ignoring that part of this and and embracing others. That's possible to do that from a distance. It's possible to dip your toe in. That's called watered down version. That's the skimmed, semi-skimmed and even the full fat version of Jesus. But we choose a true 
devotion to Jesus requires more from us. Gold top Jesus requires us to go that bit deeper and to choose to follow him and to be discipled by him. I think a question that maybe that a lot of us need to answer then or think about is, is are we Christians being discipled? It isn't, sorry, isn't are we Christians being discipled? Is rather, who is discipling us? Who's discipling you? Who's discipling your heart? Is it me? Is it you? Is it the world? Is it Jesus? Is it some other leader that you watch online and go, wow, they're amazing? Because we, we all do this. We have this habit of putting leaders on pedestals. And we've seen, haven't we, in the Christian world, many leaders of big churches, amazing pastors that we think have all fallen over the last few years because we put these people on pedestals. Who is discipling you? Who's discipling your heart? Is it the world around you? Or is it Jesus? Is it yourself, maybe? Because are we trying to create Jesus into our image or are we being made into his image? Because if God top Jesus disciples us, calls us, and requires us to follow him, does that mean that there is a cost involved? Yeah, it flipping does, unfortunately. Thomas A. Kempis wrote this. He wrote about the limitation of Christ. He said, Jesus has many lovers of the heavenly kingdom, but few bearers of his cross. All desire to rejoice with him. Few are willing to endure anything for him or with him. We all want the glory. But what does it look like when we're stuck in the mud with him? When we're going through the mess and the difficult times? When we don't get necessarily what we feel we deserve or want? How does that match up with our faith? You see, discipleship is about commitment. It cost those fishermen, Andrew, Simon, James, and John, everything they had to become disciples. Come follow me, Jesus said. He said, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in the boat with their father, Zebedee. They were at the, f- the family business. They were going to inherit that family business, probably a very successful fishing business that had been going on for years, passed down the, the, the family line. And there the brothers were. And Jesus says, come, follow me. And they did immediately. They left the boat and left their father and followed him. For Peter, Andrew, James, and John, becoming a disciple meant giving up everything else to follow Jesus. Going where Jesus led, doing what Jesus chose, rather than anything else the disciples would have naturally chosen. They wouldn't have naturally chosen that. Their natural choice was to stay with their father, stay with what they knew. Jesus didn't promise them a big wage or anything. In fact, in those times, the disciples or, or the, the, the students would, te- would choose the rabbi, not the rabbi choosing the students. So it was a really weird scenario what Jesus was doing here. And he wasn't promising them wealth or riches. He probably had nothing. Well, we know he didn't really have a lot. So what were they leaving him for? What, what were they leaving all that for? Because they knew that there was something greater on the other side, I think. Follow me, learn from me, become like me, Jesus said. And this is how it was for those first disciples and how it should be for the true disciples in every single age. Discipleship is costly. It demands sacrifice. Salvation is free, right? But discipleship costs everything that we have. We preach that gospel because the salvation is the key to our entrance into heaven. And I'm not downplaying that. I believe that we will get to heaven. All we need to do is believe in Jesus, accept him as our Lord and Savior, that he's forgiven us. We know that. But actually the process is, doesn't end there. It begins there in order for us to become more like him. Salvation costs us nothing, costs him everything. But discipleship starts to cost us stuff. And that's where it gets a little bit tricky in our faith, doesn't it? Because we have to start laying stuff on the line as well. 
It's not just a one-way ticket into heaven. We have to do other things here as well. And so Gold Top Jesus, as we're reminded last week, understands us and loves us, but more than that, calls us and disciples us in order for us to be like him. The focus of discipleship should be and always will be Jesus. The response is an active movement towards Jesus. Our new life is therefore visible to all. I think there are two primary areas where we as disciples need to develop. The first, a disciple must develop the character of Jesus. This is the Christ-likeness on the inside. And the second area is the growth of the disciple developing the competencies of Jesus. This is the Christ-likeness on the outside. Let me just explain this. Paul was referring to some of this when he urged the Philippians. He said, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He wrote that in Philippians 2, verses 4 and 5. The word mind that, that was translated from the Greek means to think in the same way or have the same disposition or attitude. Paul was encouraging these believers to have the same attitude, the same thoughts, character, internal disposition as Jesus. Remember those old bands we used to get, what would Jesus do? That's basically what he's saying. That's what he's saying in that moment. What would Jesus do? Think about it. He just mentioned a few ways that they could do that. Being like-minded, not looking out for their own interests, caring for the interests of others, considering others more important than themselves. All of these attitudes reflect the life of Jesus. What are the character qualities of Jesus? And we prayed some of this earlier. Let's think about this. In Galatians 5, verses 22 to 23, we all know it. The fruit of the Spirit is, and you can repeat after me, it's going to be on here. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Let me just say this. These are the, called the fruit of the Spirit, but they were perfectly lived out in the person of Jesus. And when Jesus when ascended to heaven, he said, I'm leaving my Holy Spirit with you in order to help you. In other words, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, when we focus on the Spirit of Jesus, on God, then he fills us with his Spirit and we should be producing this in our lives. Jesus expressed ultimate love and joy. He exemplified peace and patience in all the circumstances. He expressed uh, uh, kindness to, uh, to the forgotten, goodness to the wayward faithfulness to the faltering and gentleness and self-control even in the worst of situations you see a disciple growing in these areas he is learning day by day to let the spirit of god control him or her and change them and lead them and i think we dig further into this we start to see discipleship really is about spiritual formation it's a big christian term isn't it spiritual formation because actually everything flows from this point from our spirits from the core being of who we are, when we talk about the heart, the, the Bible speaks about the, that we should guard our heart above all else because it's the wellspring of life. It's talking about our spirit. It's the core of who we are. We should guard it. The fruit of the spirit is a clear measurable to us becoming more like Jesus. If you're on a daily basis getting angry and miffed off or you're not patient, you're not kind, you're not good, then I would say, and I have to question myself sometimes, some days, am I, am I acting in the spirit? Or am I acting in Adam? It's a question we all have to ask. Because if I'm not acting in the spirit, what the heck am I acting in? And what am I producing in my life? The second thing is this, the developing the competencies of Jesus. 
when Jesus called his disciples to follow him, he trained them to be like him and to carry on his work for this to happen. John, at the moment, is the minister in training here. God bless you, John. I don't know how you're doing, putting up with me, but you are. And technically, I'm meant to, he's like kind of like my apprentice, where I'm meant to be allowing him to do things, which he comes up and preaches, he leads, he does different things. And he's got a list that he's got to tick off in order for then Elam to go, yes, he's qualified that. He can be free to go off and do his own thing. Off you go, get your own church, save the world. That's, that's what they did with me. That I had to do a certain number of things. If you're a plumber's apprentice, you will have to learn certain things before you're let loose on somebody's bathroom. Uh, and thank God for that as well, because we don't want <laughs> floods and, and chaos to happen. And then the same principle, it's the same thing here. If we want to be disciples who carry on Jesus' work, he instills this stuff into our hearts. Jesus trains his disciples in certain competencies in order to do this. What kind of competencies did he do? So let's just look at the Gospels. For instance, Jesus trains his disciples in God's word. Throughout the Gospels, which is his story of his life, Jesus quoted the scriptures over 70 different times. He quoted scripture when he was tempted, when he was confronting the Pharisees, uh, and as he taught. In every way, Jesus was training his disciples to understand God's word. Jesus also trained his men how to pray. He, he would withdraw and retreat. He would go on retreats. He would seek his father's face. Sometimes he would pray all night if he had a big decision to make in the morning or when facing the heavy pressures of ministry. At least twice we see Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. Jesus also trained his disciples how to communicate the gospel, how to handle the word. He, ca he cared for people uh, from afar, and not just because they were a project, but because they actually mattered to God. He modeled personal and public evangelism. Then he sent his disciples to do the same thing. Jesus also invested in the majority of his time in a few emerging leaders, rather than give all his attention to the clamoring crowd. He, he showed us how to do it. In this way, Jesus was training his men to invest in others, for the optimal impact in the future. And I have to say, it probably worked, didn't it? Because two, two, two and a bit thousand years later, all of a sudden, the Christian faith has exploded everywhere. The Bible is the best-selling book, and everybody knows who Jesus is and what he, what he did, even if they don't necessarily all acknowledge it or fully understand it at this point in time. We have non-Christians uh, in schools doing their nativity. And kids asking these questions, why? Why? All because Jesus trained 12 blokes to go and women, to go out into the world, release them, become the disciples, and, what, and repeat and repeat and repeat. These are just a few of the competencies Jesus developed in his disciples. The true disciple of Jesus is progressively growing in these competencies as well. Learning to carve out time for prayer and God's word. A, di a, dis a disciple is intentionally building relationships with people far from God and sharing the gospel. They're investing their life in a few people and showing them how to walk with God. When people don't know what to do, they do nothing, right? Sometimes my, my boy Hook, bless him, he, he lacks a little bit of common sense at times, does Hook. And sometimes I just find him just, I'm like, you're right, mate, what are you doing? He's like, I don't know what to do. And we're like, okay, well, let's give you a clear instruction on what to do. Tidy your room again! <laughs> it's not quite like that. Um, maybe it is. Um, <laughs> but bless him, sometimes I just find him just like, I don't know what to do. And he needs clear instruction. We find with Hook, if we give him too many instructions, it goes over his head. So he needs clear instruction. And you see, the same is for us. When a person is shown how to walk with God, he is empowered to walk with God their whole life and help others do the same. I don't know if you remember the old Oxfam adverts. It's like you could buy a man a fish or you could buy him a net and he can learn how to fish and feed his family and feed his village. 
It's the same principle here, isn't it? Like, Jesus wants to teach us so we can do it and then show others. I am so forever grateful for the people and the disciples who trained me in these things. I'm so forever grateful for a guy called Paul Daly, who's now a pastor in Willow Creek in, in Chicago, who spent time investing in me, even when I pushed away from him, said, I don't want to know. He continued to invest in me and love me. I'm so grateful for Duncan Clark, who's, uh, who's another minister who invested in my heart and in my life. I'm so grateful for, for women like Sarah Bale. You don't know these people, but they invested in my, my life, took time. I'm so grateful for William, who was here before, who took a year to invest in my life. Nigel Tween, who took a year to invest into my life. Uh, Leon, who I was with before, took time to invest into my life. And the list is goes on and on and on and on. People who have chosen to disciple me and to show me how they do things. I'm so grateful for those men and women. See, living a Christ-centered and Christ-controlled life is so important. Because less left to ourselves, let's be honest, it's impossible. So impossible. We can't make ourselves change on the inside, no matter how much willpower we have. What we need is someone from the outside to come to us and change us on the inside. And that someone is called Jesus. The way to live the Christian life is being Jesus-centered, Jesus-controlled. Each day we make the choice to either acknowledge Jesus as the center of our lives and around which everything else revolves, or we put ourselves in that place. Put yourself in the place of, of God. Are you the God of your life, your heart, or is Jesus the God of your life and your heart? Every day we make the choice to either voluntarily surrender the control of our lives to Jesus or to grab the reins and assume control. Over the years, there have been times when I've lived, and I do live, this Christ-centered and Christ-controlled lives. In those moments, I want to tell you, my life is so much easier, so much more fruitful, more beautiful in those moments. Even in the moments where it's difficult and tough, seem to be able to just get through. And that's Jesus leading me. The Spirit of God produces in me the character of Jesus and the desire to live out the competencies of Jesus. But honestly, there are days when Jesus hasn't been the center of my life. Shock horror. I know, right? I'm not perfect. Don't shoot me. And I've been busy working out my little plans and my ways and my efforts. And on those days, Jesus hasn't been in control of my life. The result is that I have given very little thought to the character and competencies of Jesus. I'm probably a little less patient, a little less kind, a little less loving, a little less thoughtful towards others. And I still may achieve, but it feels a lot harder to, to achieve. Does that make sense? I feel a lot more exhausted. Because actually it's him that wants to carry our weight and our load. And when we allow him to, and when we allow to do it in Jesus' strength, because he's teaching us how to rely on it, it's a completely different way. You know, we've all got room to grow. And I'm not saying that a disciple has all this down because they do not. But what I am saying is that a true disciple of Jesus is moving in this direction. And I want to challenge us this morning with this. You know, the spirit within them is working on them and the desire to live just like Jesus. The Apostle Paul said this. He told his young disciple, uh, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 4.15, he said, Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress your progress progress he didn't say timothy you have to be perfect mate so keep going at it and when you're perfect and you've nailed it you come back to me and i'll give you the next thing and the next thing and the next thing but he said timothy is about progress keep on going keep on going you must have you, you must he didn't say you must have it all together all the time he said keep moving forward keep progressing don't stagnate i'm coming into land now 
God wants every one of us to grow spiritually and into spiritual maturity. But be honest with yourselves. I'm going to ask you some really telling questions. And ask yourself these questions. Over the last year, how much have I grown in my relationship with Jesus? Honestly, have you grown in your relationship with Jesus? Or are you just where you were when we began this time last year? Are you more now like Jesus than you were before? And I think when we first come to faith or we have an injection of hope and stuff, we're like, woohoo, yes, I'm like Jesus. And then it kind of goes, oh, this is like a marathon, not a sprint. And this is hard work and I'm tired and life's getting on top of me. And it's exhausting at times. But you see, it's God's will that every one of us will continually be making progress in every area of discipleship. Every one of us should be closer to Jesus this year than we were last year, praying more meaningfully, worshipping more deeply, serving and witnessing more effectively. Every Christian should be growing up into Christ. We need to... We need the kind of discipleship which will transform us into everything that God calls us to be as Christians, into the image of Jesus. We need learning, not just head knowledge, but heart knowledge of God, our Heavenly Father. We need to be obedient to put into practice the things that we have learned. And alongside these things, we need a passion, a holy zeal that will make it natural and easy to love God with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our strength and all of our mind. As I close today, I want to just pray a prayer, and I wondered if you would pray it with me. It's an old prayer, and I think it's one that a, a true disciple would pray. And it's a really sometimes I think look, we try to overcomplicate stuff. I feel like we have to stand here and say all these elongated words and be eloquent when we when we pray or preach and whatever. But you know, God is a very simple God in many ways. <laughs> He's not just for the intellects. Woohoo! Thank God for that. But it's for some of us that don't aren't so s- smart as well. It's for all of us. And therefore, sometimes we try to overcomplicate it, but I think sometimes these pr- like easy practices, getting up and saying this prayer every day, how easy would that be? for You know, like a doctor prescribes something to you, take this pill once a day for five days of the week, and I guarantee you'll feel better by the end of it, he says. Why don't we pray this prayer once or twice a day for the next five days, seven days, see how we feel next week. Are we closer to God? Are we more like him? So, let's uh, pray this in a moment. Why don't you stand with me if you're able to. And then the worship team are going to lead us in a time of worship. And sometimes when we pray, I think it's important to stand and to move around because I think that actually we just get a bit <laughs> comfortable. We can sort of start to fall asleep, especially when someone's been yabbering on for the last half an hour. So this will wake you up. Let's just just change our postures. Just shake yourself up a little bit if you have to. And I would encourage you to put your hands out like you're going to receive something from Jesus. He may not give you anything. But if you don't put your hands out like expectant, then why would he not? Why would he? You know, if you put your hands out, he'll put something in there potentially. So let's put our hands out. Let's pray this together. Day by day, dear Lord, I pray see you more clearly, to love you more dearly, and follow you more nearly, day by day. Amen.